Today's reading is from Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 to 29. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. If law, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we no longer, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Thanks for reading, Sang, and welcome again to all of you. Um, If you haven't already uh, opened a Bible, if you have one, I want to invite you to open up a Bible, if you've got one with you, to Galatians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today, Um, or or click through your device to Galatians chapter 3. And while you do that, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about, um, about my high school career. When I think back on my high school career, and I got to think back pretty far to remember it, um, I realized that the, the hardest class I ever took was calculus. Math generally was a struggle. Calculus in particular was seemingly to me at times an almost insurmountable struggle. I was not interested in it. I was not doing, doing well in it. And um, I had almost kind of uh, resigned myself to the fact that I was never going to get it. Um, I had a teacher who was very, very loving, very, um, very uh, committed, um, uh, very persistent, even in the face of my own resistance. 
And so my teacher, she would sit down with me and she would say, Rob, you're going to get this. You're not going to leave um, high school without understanding this. And so she would sit with me and she would persistently keep bringing me back to the problems that I was having difficulty with. And she would also um, try to approach these problems from different angles. If she saw that something wasn't working, she'd say, Rob, let's start over. Let's come at this from another angle. Um, long story short, um, I made it through calculus. Um, I, I'm, I'm indebted to this teacher and her persistence and her um, varied approaches to teaching me. And, and I went off to college and I became an English major and I never took another math class again in my life. The Apostle Paul here in the book of Galatians is doing something a little similar to what my teacher did. He, he's, he's persistent with his readers and with us. And he's also coming at the issues that he wants us to understand from different angles. He's saying, I'm not going to let you go. You're not going to get away without getting this, without understanding and appropriating this truth that, that, is, that you urgently need. The book of Galatians is not about math, thank God. Paul's not teaching calculus. But this whole book is taken up with this one core question. How can we be accepted by God? How can we be accepted by God? Now the answer is pretty simple, but the Galatians were having a hard time accepting it. Rather, they were really having a hard time believing it and clinging to it. And so the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to keep coming at you with the answer again and again. I'm going to, I'm going to come from different angles, and that's what he's doing again today. The answer in summary, is the same thing we've been looking at for several weeks now. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, if you want to know how we can be accepted by God, the answer is by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Very simple, right? A simple formula in a sense. Grace, by grace, simply means as a gift. Acceptance with God cannot be earned through performance. It cannot be earned through any kind of um, dutiful fulfillment of obligations. It's by grace, that means it's a gift. But the way that gift is received is through faith. Believing, believing. And it's faith, not just generally or vaguely, but it's faith in Jesus. By grace, through faith in Jesus. We get acceptance to God, or by God, as a gift, by believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Paul's coming at the same answer from a different angle today in Galatians 3, 15 through 29. So let's look at what the Apostle Paul says here. And in order for us to do that, I think we need to, we need to go back and review a little bit of history. Um, so we're going to do this briefly, but let's go back in our minds to 2000 B.C. That's a little bit before I was in high school. God called Abraham in, in around that time when Abraham was living in a place called Ur. He was not a worshiper of God. He was living in this place called Ur, worshiping false gods. He did not know Yahweh, the God of the Bible, yet. And yet God comes to him and makes promises to him. God says to Abraham, I am going to give you an innumerable seed or offspring. I'm going to give you this huge line of descendants. And God also promises, I'm going to give your offspring a place to live, a land of their own. 
You're going to leave Ur to this place called Canaan, and it's going to be yours and your offsprings. And he also makes another promise to Abraham. He says, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. A series of, a series of beautiful promises. And these promises were confirmed to Abraham again and again. And they were, then they were confirmed to Abraham's son, Isaac. And then they were confirmed again by God to Isaac's son, Jacob. But as it turns out, Jacob himself would die outside of the promised land. By the time Jacob lives and dies, he's in Egypt, in a place of exile, because a famine had driven his family there. And so Jacob's 12 sons, they live and they die in Egypt as well, outside of the land that was promised to them by God. Centuries go by, Centuries, And then finally, God raises up a man named Moses. And God uses Moses to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, this place where they were in exile, and in fact, at that point, were in slavery. God uses Moses to bring them out of slavery. And through Moses, God gives his people a law. Before he gets them to the promised land that he had promised them, he gives them a law at Mount Sinai. Perhaps you remember that narrative. Now that is a very super condensed history of the Israelite people. But it's the history that connects Abraham to Moses. And as we're going to see today, it's also the history that connects Abraham and Moses to Jesus. But what does all this have to do with us? What's the relevance of all this for us? Three points in our message today as we walk through Galatians 3, 15 through 29. First point is a promise, a promised inheritance. A promised inheritance. That's in verses 15 to 18. And then point two, a temporary guardian. A temporary guardian. And that's in Galatians 3, 19 to 25. And then last point, a new identity. A new identity. And that's in verses 26 through 29. So let's start there in verses 15 through 18. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read them again to you under this heading, A Promised Inheritance. It says there, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, listen, who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This is the word of the Lord. Paul's saying here, let me give you an illustration, folks, from history. Remember, he's coming at the same truth that, that, that uh, acceptance with God is by grace through faith in Christ. And he's saying, I'm going to approach this from another angle. Let me give you an example from history. And he uses the example of Abraham. He says, God made a covenant with Abraham. And this word for covenant here, it sometimes was used in the ancient world to refer to a, a testament. That's why we call the, the 
the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. means the Old Covenant and New Covenant. But this word covenant was often used in ancient times to refer to um, the kind of testament that someone would leave upon their death, a will and testament. The covenant here is something akin to, in fact, it is a will. So, for instance, if someone is, has a family and they have possessions and inheritance that they want to leave for their family, what do they do? They hire a lawyer. They write out their will. Now, here's the thing. When a will is enacted, when it's settled once and for all, either, either because the person who wrote the will has passed away or because some legal action has been taken to ratify that will, after that point, the will cannot be changed. Now, in our culture, a will can be changed by the person who wrote it, by the, the actual individual um, who's, who's bequeathing their possessions. They can change that will, but once they pass away, the will cannot be altered. In some cultures, in the Jewish culture, for instance, once a will was written, you yourself couldn't even change it, even if it was your will. You couldn't go back and say, well, I, I thought about this a bit, and um, I thought I liked uh, this kid more than that one, but I realize it's the other way around now, and I, I think I'm going to switch this. Couldn't do it. Paul is saying what's true for God is true for us. I mean, what's true for us, I should say, is true for God. If we ourselves can't change a ratified will, annul it or amend it after the fact, God himself cannot and will not annul or, or void a will that he has already left for us. The law does not nullify, annul the promise that was made by God. The promise to leave an inheritance for his people. Verse 17 it look a little bit confusing there. Paul is talking about this word offspring and, and what does it mean. And he's really saying, who is this offspring at this will that this, this covenant promise was made to? Who, who receives the inheritance is what he's saying. And by the way, before we even get into that, I want to mention that this Paul understood something very important about this will, about this covenant and promise that God had made. He realized that there was an immediate practical meaning to it, but there was a deeper spiritual meaning to it. The Apostle Paul realized that the promise that was made to Abraham was for this literal place called Canaan. God is saying, I'm going to give you that land. You're going to live there. And, and, and quite literally, this promise is for your biological descendants, Abraham. Your family's going to live in that land. But Paul sees, and the New Testament points to this over and over again, that there's a deeper meaning to this promise, a spiritual meaning. God's real and deeper plan was not just to give a piece of land to Abraham's biological lineage. It was to give a spiritual inheritance, a spiritual blessing to the offspring of Abraham. And now we go back to the question, who is this offspring? Ultimately, Paul says, the offspring is Jesus Christ. Paul knows that the word offspring used here in, in, the, in the original Hebrew and also the word that he's using in Greek, it could refer to one person, but it could also refer to a collection of people. It's a collective noun, kind of like family singular, but it refers to a whole group of people. Or church, it's a singular noun, but it refers to all of us 
It's collective. Paul says, look, who is the offspring? It's not just, it's not really those, the spiritual offspring are not those who just descended from Abraham biologically. No, the offspring is Jesus, the one that would come in the line of Abraham many centuries later. Remember, offspring is a collective noun. So the offspring is not just Jesus, the individual who would come in the line of Abraham, but the offspring is everyone who is connected to Jesus by faith. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you are the offspring that have been promised the inheritance that cannot be nullified, voided, amended, or revoked. The inheritance is yours in Christ. Paul's really just restating what he said back in verse 7 of Galatians 3 and 7 and in verse 9. He says, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Who's the real offspring? Those who are of faith. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see, again, the offspring is Jesus and it's everyone who's connected to Jesus. The inheritance, all of God's blessings belong to Christ. He's the only one who deserves them. He's the only one who's lived up to his filial obligations. He's the only one that's been the perfect son and deserves to get everything that's coming to him from the Father. But through faith, you and I are connected to the offspring. So because of his faithfulness, now we Now we get the blessing too. The inheritance is ours. And what is that inheritance? We've talked about it in the past. It's almost like it's it's, it's one of those, it's it's like a a gift. It comes in a box and, and there's so much in there that if we open it up and we start pulling out what's in there, we can be here all day analyzing and praising God for the contents of this inheritance. This inheritance includes acceptance with God. Only Jesus deserves it. We get it through him. Intimacy with God, the Father. It's part of the inheritance. What else is part of the inheritance? Eternal life. What else is part of the inheritance? Let your mind kind of just flip through what you've seen in the scriptures. How about the gift of the Holy Spirit living in you? That is part of the inheritance that is yours through faith in Christ. All of ours who believe in Jesus. How about this? God plans one day to renew all things, a new heavens and a new earth. Everything that is beautiful about this world will be more beautiful. Everything that is broken will be healed and fixed. And everything will be as it should have been from the beginning. A new heavens and a new earth. That is part of the inheritance that is yours through faith in Christ. Why does Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talk about those who will inherit the earth? In Christ, we will inherit a new earth. The list goes on. The inheritance, it's almost like we can't read through the entire will. It just keeps unrolling and unrolling and unrolling like a scroll. Paul is making a simple point here. He's saying, yes, after God made this promise to Abraham to give him this inheritance, he also gave, him, he gave the Israelites the law. He gave his people the law um, uh, 400 plus years later. But he's saying, listen, the law doesn't change the terms of the initial agreement. The law doesn't change the covenant. 
And the reason he's saying this is because people in Galatia, there were false teachers in there called Judaizers. We've talked about them in the past. They were teaching the Galatians that the law had now been added as a condition for receiving the inheritance. They were being taught that if you fail to keep this law in all of its details, you will revoke God will revoke the inheritance. You won't get it. And Paul's saying, no, that's not how inheritances work. Back in, uh, in 1983, there was a movie released called uh, Easy Money. Now, I can remember this. Um, I don't know how many of you remember this. Silly movie. But it's all about this guy. His name is Monty. And Monty is a, is a hard-drinking, gambling um, guy. He, he works as a photographer of children. He hates his job. He, he photographs his photographs kids, right? It's a, it's a, he hates his job. He lives in Staten Island with his wife. Um, and, and his family, his wife's family, they own a multi-million dollar department store. Now, Monty lives a very humble life in Staten Island, but his mother's family owns an empire. And when his mother-in-law passes away one day, Monty is named in the will. And he's surprised because he knows his mother-in-law hated him. <laughs> but he's in the will. But there's a catch. In order for him to get the inheritance, he has to drop all of his vices for a year. Drop the drugs, the alcohol, go on a diet, stop gambling. And if he does that for a full year, he will receive $10 million. If he fails, his family gets nothing. You see, it's an inheritance, but it's an inheritance with, with a hook. It's an inheritance with a bit of law thrown in. <laughs> Keep the law, the inheritance I promised is yours. What Paul is saying here is that that's not really much of a promise at all. It's not a true promise when the law is tied to it as a requirement. A true inheritance, unlike the one that Monty was in for, is simply received. It's not worked for. You simply show up with your hands open and you get it. It is bequeathed to you. It's a gift, not a paycheck not a reward. And Paul is saying that our inheritance from God is received by faith. If not, if it wasn't, and the promise would be broken, and God would be a liar, and he is not. Do you see the grace in all of that? Do you see how, again, we keep looking at this week after week because we need to keep our eyes fixed on it. God does not deal with us on the basis of our performance. He deals with us on the basis of promises, promises that he made. Now, that doesn't mean that the grace once received does not mean that we should perform in a certain way out of love and obedience to a God who saved us. Of course we should. But the gift, the promise, was not offered to us on the basis of our past performance, or future potential performance. Acceptance into God's family, the forgiveness, the eternal life, the, the permanent status as his child. All these things belong to God, and he can give them to whoever he wants. He can do with it whatever he wants, and he chooses to give it away freely to all who believe in Jesus. That's the inheritance that's been promised. Let's look at the second point. A temporary guardian. 
a temporary guardian. In verses 19 through 24, there's content in here that can be a little confusing. If you find some of this confusing, um, uh, especially as you, as you get uh, halfway through it, um, you're not alone. It, it is difficult. Um, some, some of this has been uh, uh, interpreted in different ways, similar but slightly different ways by theologians over time. But let's just try to get the main point out of here. Paul's asking the question, why does the law exist? If the law is not a condition for us to receive the inheritance that's been promised to us, then why does it exist in the first place? And he answers it this way, very succinctly. He says, the law was given, it was added because of transgressions. Because of transgressions. And I want us to just think for a moment about what that means. Last week, if you were here, I told you that the law is like an MRI. The law has the ability to, to show you how sinful and broken you are when you sit under it and you look at it closely and it shines its light on you. That is when you look, for instance, at the Ten Commandments and what they tell you. Or maybe you just look at the two commandments that summarize all ten. When Jesus was asked, what, are the, what, are the, the, what is the most important commandment? What is the greatest commandment? Do you know what he said? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And he said, there's a second commandment that's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Many theologians have pointed out that you take those two commandments, love God, love your neighbor. If you take those two, all the other commands in the Bible just flow out of those two. In fact, if you were to take the Ten Commandments, for instance, you'll see that the first four are basically just ways to love God, and the last six are basically ways to love your neighbor. And even love God and love your neighbor, we can further reduce them into just one commandment. They both just flow out of that first commandment, love God. Because if you are truly loving God, and if you are, in fact, after God, then you will seek to serve and love those who are created in his image. When you sit under the power of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors as yourself, and you... You, you just kind of dwell in the presence of those laws for a little while. Like an MRI machine, your insides start, start being revealed to you. And you start to see all the ways that you have failed to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You start to see all the ways that you failed to love your neighbor as yourself. And, 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 if, you, and if you really have trouble, if you're really not even seeing that, then, then just dial it in a little bit. I don't know how an MRI machine works. But, but maybe if you change the setting a little bit, you start looking at the individual laws, the, each of the Ten Commandments, for instance, and put yourself under the light of each one of those, and you begin to see all the ways that you have, uh, you have been the bearer of false witness, you have been a liar, all the ways that you have coveted, or all the ways that you have murdered in your heart through hatred and anger. And, and, and what, what happens? You start to see who you really are. The law exposes you for who you really are, and the law exposes sin for what it really is. What Paul is saying here is that the law not only shows you that you're a sinner, and not only shows you that sin is destructive and awful, the law goes beyond that and shows you that sin is transgression. What does transgression mean? Transgression means to go outside the bounds. It means to, it means to cross over a line that you were told not to cross over. Transgress means to break a law. 
Sin can be looked at in many different ways. Here's one way that the law tells us to look at sin. Look at it as God giving you his perfect will and you rejecting that will and saying, I will transgress it. I will break it. I don't care about it. I'm going to do what I want to do. The law was given for transgressions. It was given to show us that we are transgressors and to show us the nature of our transgressions. Look at what um, Paul says in Romans 7. He's talking about the same idea in Romans 7, I believe. In verse 7, he says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? He's basically saying, is the law bad? And he says, no, the law is not bad by no means. Yet, he says, listen to this, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You see, Paul's saying, I wouldn't even know what sin was, not really, unless the law showed it to me. And he gives a specific example. He says, coveting, for instance. Take the 10th commandment. Do not covet. He says, I wouldn't even know half the time that I was coveting unless the law told me not to do it. How many times? Look, think about this. Think about that particular example. When you see something or dream up something that you desire and you long for so deeply, it's someone else's. It's not yours, but you want it. Maybe it's someone's status. Maybe it's someone's power. Maybe it's someone's spouse. Maybe it's someone's relationship. Maybe it's someone's history and upbringing. Whatever it is, but it's someone else's. You see it, and you're dreaming, man, I wish I had that. Now, most of us would look at that and be like, that's just human nature. Of course, that's natural. What's the big deal? We need the law to actually come to us and tell us, you realize that that's actually evil and destructive? You probably don't even realize it's evil and destructive. You probably don't even realize the eroding gangrenous, decaying effect that it's having on your heart to covet what's not yours. But God's law says, look, look how bad it is. And, and look at the presence of it in you. The law defines sin and it reveals the awfulness of sin. The, the law confronts you in sin. Sometimes sins, certain particular sins, become normalized. I gave you the example of, of coveting. It just it feels normal. It feels natural until God says, "Wait a second. And he confronts us in it. There's nothing natural about it. Not really. It's only natural because we're fallen sinners. But there are other sins that become normalized. We, maybe it's because of the culture we live in or because of the people we hang out with. Think about this historically. There was a time in which the human slave trade, slavery in North America, South America, um, in Europe, was, was, um, was normal. <laughs> Many people who would gather like this on a Sunday and worship God together would then go out and buy humans and abuse those humans and split up their families and send children to be sold and wives to be sold and husbands to be sold and work them until they couldn't work anymore, until they died. And no one seemed to think that it was sin. And maybe there were pangs of conscience. Maybe there was, even, even among some of those people that professed to be Christians, there were pangs of conscience, but they look around and be like, well, this is the culture I live in. This is the time I live in. This is normal. The law confronts us in the normalcy of sin and says there is nothing normal about it. It's evil. And there will be a price to pay for it. 
uh, now. I mean, we've moved forward. I mean, think that we, we got out of slavery and the segregation and Jim Crow laws throughout the South are normal. It's just the way you live. This is the way society's supposed to be. The law confronts us in the normalcy of that and says, no. Today, consider that it's possible to live in such a way that to you, human trafficking is normal. It's possible to lull yourself into such a dangerous sleep, to be so confused about God's will, to, to think that sexual immorality is normal. Or that looking at pornography from time to time, or daily, or once in a while, is normal. There's nothing destructive about it. God's law confronts us in that and says, no, you don't realize the evil of what you're doing. You don't see that your pornography is not a victimless crime. It's not a harmless pastime. It's evil. It's destructive. Not only that, it's a transgression of my law, and there will be a penalty to be paid for it. run the list from all kinds of injustices, from racism to uh, 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 on-demand abortion. Normal. God says, no. No, it's not. Just sit under the light of my law for a while, and it will reveal the evil of all of this. Galatians 3.23 says, Now before faith came, you were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until faith came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Paul's using some metaphors here. He's comparing the law to a kind of prison, to, to a kind of jail warden. He's saying, in, in a sense, the law was put in place to, to confine you, but in a sense to, to set some parameters around you. When you're in prison, the parameters are very clear. You know where you can go and where you can't go, what you can do, what you can't do, when you eat, when you go to sleep. In prison, all those decisions are made for you. Paul's saying the law is a, a kind of prison. It, it keeps you, in a sense, it's keeping you uh, 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 restricted. It's limiting the boundaries of your life. He also says it was a guardian. The law was a guardian. Uh, this word was often used in the, in the, fir- in the first century Greco-Roman world to refer to a person who worked as a kind of, well, tutor's not exactly the right word, maybe like a, a British like governess sort of thing, uh, kind of like a nanny. Um, the, the, the guardian was someone... Um, the, the, the word is sometimes translated as pedagogue. It's, it's someone who would be uh, work for a family. Sometimes they were slaves. Sometimes they were servants of the family. And their job was to care for the, the minors, the, the children in the family. But it wasn't so much to teach them, to bathe them, and stuff like that. Their job was to like, keep an eye on them, keep them out of trouble, make sure they were going where they were supposed to go, from school to home, from home to school, to wherever it was that young Roman kids went. The, the, the guardian was there to keep them in line. And in, and in old first century pictures, when the guardian uh, is, 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 is depicted in art, they usually have a rod in their hand. Maybe the rod was to point the way. Maybe the rod was to um, encourage the child in the right way. Paul is saying, 
The law is like a prison. The law was like this, this tutor, this pedagogue that would, that would keep an eye on you. And, and there's supposed to be, as we read this, we should get a sense for the, the kind of oppressiveness of this. I mean, it's for your good, but it's, it's, it's hard. It's restrictive. Okay? But then in verse 24, he says, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. This is why I say point two is a temporary guardian. The law was a guardian for a time. That doesn't mean that the law serves no purpose in our lives right now. It does. We're going to see that in a second. But here's what the law is meant to do. Historically and even now, the law is meant to lead us to Jesus Christ. The law is meant to point us and drive us to Christ. The law doesn't end in and on itself. Like, keep obeying it and God will accept you. The the law was always meant from the very beginning to bring us to the end of ourselves, to this self-awareness so that we see our own sinfulness and then we see Jesus and we we go from self-awareness to Christ-awareness. And we find in him the rescuer, the substitute, the true everlasting guardian that we really need. The law comes to us. See, the the law, it's it's not opposed to the promise, Paul says. They just have different purposes. Don't mix up the promise and the law, but don't see them as in conflict either. The promise was given. The law was then given to Part of the reason that the law was given is so that we would cherish the promise all the more. So that we would see why we need that promise. Listen, the law comes to you and says, you're guilty. And the promise says, forgiveness. Forgiveness. The law says, you are alienated from a holy God. The promise says, acceptance. Intimacy with God. Come, sit at the table with your heavenly father. The law says, listen, the penalty that you have incurred is death. The law comes to us and says, listen, forgiveness. Forgiveness is yours. That's the promise of the gospel. You see, those promises will start to lose meaning and value when we don't realize the truth of the law. This is why the church needs to call sin, sin. We, we don't help anyone by not doing that. It's part of God's purpose is to tell us what sin is, show us how sinful we are, show us the, the harsh words of the, 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 the law that says, thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt, thou shalt not, and then bring the promise that says, here's what I will do for you. Here's what I have done for you, God says to us in the promise. That takes us to our very last point, a new identity, a new identity. Let's just read this section, verse 25 through 29. But now that faith has come, you are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. 
You are all one in Christ Jesus. And really, just to pause there, we could literally translate that as, you are all one person in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Listen to what God is telling us here. He's calling us his sons. He's saying, you are sons of God. He's now your guardian. And he's not like those temporary guardians that you had, the law. Now you are his son. And really, we could say sons and daughters. When, when the Apostle Paul writes son here, it's not because he's alienating or ignoring uh, uh, those of you who are women. It, what he's saying is, you are all rightful heirs in the same way that in the ancient world, only the son could be the rightful heir. The firstborn son was the only one who was really entitled to the inheritance. Now, in Christ, all of you are sons and daughters. But status-wise, it's like you're the firstborn son. You get the inheritance. You're not second or third in line. Sonship means that you will inherit everything that God has promised to his children. Listen to that. You are sons of God. But how are we sons of God? Don't miss that last part of verse 26. You are sons through faith. Sons through faith. A lot of people, I think, have been confused about this, continue to be confused about this. The scriptures do not teach us, God does not reveal us himself to us in the Bible as the father of everyone. He doesn't. He reveals himself to us in the scriptures as the creator of everyone, as the king and ruler over everyone, as the judge of everyone. That's universal. But he only reveals himself as the father of Jesus Christ and those who are connected to Jesus Christ by faith. You are all sons of God. He can say freely, through faith in Jesus. Without faith in Jesus, there is no sonship. Without faith in Jesus, there is no rightful standing as a firstborn son. Without faith in Jesus, there's no inheritance. But with faith in Jesus, it's all yours. And notice it's in Christ. He uses this term several times here. He says, in Christ. You are, you are, look, he says, for, for in Christ Jesus you are sons of God through faith. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And at the end of verse 28, you are all one person in Christ Jesus. What Paul is doing here is he's using one of his favorite little phrases, in Christ into Christ, on Christ. It all points to this glorious truth that theologians for a long time have called union with Christ. I wish we would all remember this term for the rest of our lives because I think that if we remembered our union with Christ more clearly, we'd avoid a lot of the anxiety, a lot of the depression, a lot of the anger, a lot of the fear. I speak for myself. In Christ. Paul is saying, look, it's not just that you believed truths about this person. It's that by faith in him, by reliance and trust in him, in God's eyes, you and Christ are one. 
You are united. You're not just his followers. Sometimes I use the term follower of Christ. Are you a follower of Christ? That's true. That's good. Are you a disciple of Christ? That's true. But it doesn't get really to the root of what our relationship with Jesus is. You're not just his follower. You're not just his disciple. You are those things, but more. If you are in Christ, then you are one with him. Connected, bound, welded, forged together eternally so that everything that's his is yours. And everything that is yours now belongs to him. Your life, your time, your money, your children, your relationships, your career, it's all his. And you are his. That is a new identity. You see, part of the inheritance that we receive, it's, it's the eternal life and it's the gift of the Spirit. It's a new heavens and a new earth, and it's forgiveness. It's all these things, but it's also a new identity, a new person. Jesus points to that. Paul points to that here. Look what he says. He even goes as far as to say, if you're in Christ, you're all united in him. You're all Abraham's offspring. He says there's no longer, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. What is he saying there? He's saying those, those, those are major distinctions. He's talking about race and rank and gender. Those are the things that, that separated people completely in the ancient world, and they still do today. It's what keeps us apart from others. Rank, sex, ethnicity. And then notice Paul's not saying here, now your gender doesn't matter. Your ethnicity doesn't matter. What you do for a living, that doesn't matter. He's not saying those things are irrelevant. What he's saying is they're not as important as they once were, and they do not define you, and they do not keep you from being part of the community that is united in Jesus Christ. You are fundamentally one in Christ. That is your foundational identity. The community of, of God's offspring is not genderless, ethnicity-less. It's not. We're men and women from many backgrounds, and that's beautiful. Unity is not uniformity. God never wanted uniformity. We read in Revelation that he will be worshipped by people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. You know what that communicates to me? It communicates to me that even in the new world, when everything is perfect and all is as it should be, we're not all going to look the same and speak the same language, necessarily. We're going to be worshiping in the beauty and glory of the diversity that God has created. Every tongue, tribe, and nation together, united, one person in Christ, and yet beautiful and dignified and different in so many ways. God says, I love that. That's why I made you that way. So when everything is as it should be, it's not going to be genderless and ethnicity-less. No, it's going to be gender practiced and lived out beautifully. It's going to be ethnicities lived out with dignity and beauty and mutual respect. I have more in common with Yisi, who's standing up here next to me, than I do with any 43-year-old bald Brazilian-American guy who was born and raised in New Jersey. Foundationally and fundamentally, at the core, I have more in common with my sister in Christ, even though she's tall and she's thin and she's got hair. 
we are one in Christ. And when God looks at us, he, 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 he sees the beauty of the diversity, and yet he says, you are one person in Jesus. I look at you and I see you clothed in him. You have put him on. I see you clothed in his righteousness. I want to leave you with two takeaways, and then we'll, we'll stop. They're quick. Two things I want you to do. One, I want you to let the law lead you to Christ. Let the law lead you to Christ. I've said this before, but when the law of God confronts you, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. So if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are not a, a Christian and you're here, we're very, very happy you're here. I'm, I'm very glad you're here. But I want to tell you, let the law do its work. Read God's law and let it lead you to Christ. And when God confronts you with his commands in his Bible, don't deflect that. Don't push it away. Instead, receive it and say, how does this show me who Jesus is? And, and how can I go to Jesus and find rescue? And if you're a believer, I want to encourage you in the same way. Anytime that you see a command in the scriptures, whether it's one of the Ten Commandments or whether it's Jesus saying crazy things like, love your enemy. Woo! Or it's Jesus saying to you, if someone strikes you, let, give them the other side. Let them strike the other side too. Someone wants something from you, you give them more than they ask for. When you see these commands that sound irrational coming from God, I, I want to encourage you, sit under that. Don't just deflect. Don't just say, oh, that's crazy. No one can really do that. Jesus must have meant something else. Just move on. Don't do that. Instead, sit under the weight of those crazy commands because they're not crazy. <laughs> sit under them and remember, first of all, you're safe because Jesus has fulfilled that law for you. You're not under condemnation because of your failure to keep those commands because Christ kept them for you and died for you. Sit under those commands. Remember, just reading this command isn't going to transform me. The command doesn't have the power to make me right. It can only show me what's wrong with me. But Jesus, Jesus has the power by his spirit to make me right. He has the power to make me a person who will love my enemies, who will give more than I'm asked for, who will stop short of, of defensiveness. Let the law, in all of its forms, lead you to Jesus. When you come across the law in God's word, any command, any do this, don't just push it aside and walk away. See how Jesus fulfilled it perfectly and how you have not. And then cry out to Christ and say, thank you for fulfilling this for me. Thank you for the forgiveness that's mine because you fulfilled this. Now, Lord, work in me. Make me obedient to this. And I will exert myself. I will seek to work out my salvation as I, as I seek to walk in obedience to this. But I'm going to trust and rely fully on the energy that you work within me to do it. And then lastly, I want to encourage you to embrace your new identity. Embrace your new identity. Who are you, brothers and sisters? Who are you? Have you ever stood in the mirror? What do you think about when you look in the mirror in the morning? Like, man, I, I, sometimes I'm like, man... Got more gray in this beard than I did yesterday. You look kind of puffy, Rob. What's going on, man? You look tired. You look awful. Whatever. What do you think about? Do you ever stand in the mirror and say, you are a child of God, an heir according to promise? Do you ever do that? Do you realize that that's part of it? We, we throw around this term, preaching the gospel to ourselves. We throw that around. We say, hey, listen, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. I wonder how many of us really preach the gospel to ourselves. Here's one way, one simple way to preach the gospel to yourself. As you look at yourself, speak truth. 
gospel truth. And one beautiful gospel truth is that when you stand in the morning looking at the mirror with crust in your eyes and the residue of drool on your beard or your face, you can say, an heir according to promise, one with Christ. I stand to receive everything that is his. I am God's, a son or daughter according to promise. I'm beloved. I'm accepted. I don't need to prove anything today. I get to walk and follow my Savior today by the power that he's given me. Embrace your new identity. Remind yourself of it. I am righteous in Christ. And that's never meant to lead us to complacency or passivity. But it's meant to leave us, lead us to a place where we are now we seek to live our lives as family members, live our lives like Christ, but not because we hope that if we do a good enough job, God will treat us like Christ. No, it's because he has already welcomed us, already promised us. The inheritance is already yours. Let's pray. Lord, more than anything, what we need, all we need is faith to believe your promises. Whether we've never believed them before, or whether we have accepted them and have forgotten them or doubted them again and again and again. So give us faith to believe, Lord. Amen.